This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. This is Ahmed Zappa. You're listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology, the fucking best show there is. DIY and How Studios present Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello, diggers. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of Rock and Roll Archaeology. Christian Swain here behind the mic at the San Francisco studios today. Thank you once again for joining us. In Deeper Digs, we go a little further, dig a little deeper into specific topics that tie in with rock and roll history. The music, the culture, and the technology. It's the companion show to our episodic overview of rock history, the Rock and Roll Archaeology podcast. If you'd like to help out the RNRA, please head over to our brand new website and click on the Support the Shows tab. You can click from there to our Patreon page and make a much appreciated donation. Or if you'd like to pick up some awesome rock and roll archaeology swag, well, click to our T Public link. That's rockandrollarchaeology.com. Okay, let's get to it. You know, we have been on a roll lately with the rock writers here at Deeper Digs. We've had some really good ones drop by, and today we've got another great one for you. It's Mr. Stephen Hyden, and he's got a fine new book out. Uh, We've pretty much all read it here, and we really love it. Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock, was published in May 2018 by HarperCollins. Twilight of the Gods is Stephen's second book, and his first with a big publishing house. Like I said, we all loved it here, and we are continually talking about it. The consensus was, yep, first of all, he's one of us. A starry-eyed romantic rock and roll fan. That means, like us, Stephen's able to simultaneously hold and express two completely contradictory ideas without going insane. 
The first is the undeniable fact that rock and roll is long gone. As a dominant cultural force, it's done. Uh, finito, uh, kaput. What's more, really, a, a lot of it wasn't all that great. Uh, a lot of it, what we remember as profound and important, uh, really wasn't that big of a deal. We romanticize and elevate our past. Uh, especially what happens to us in our teens and 20s. I, I think all people do that, uh, and rock and roll fans do that more than most. And it doesn't help that we've all got a self-righteous streak a mile wide. Uh, we take ourselves and our musical tastes way too serious, uh, some more than others. It's ripe target for satire, and rightfully so. So, rock is dead now. It was kind of overrated all along. We understand that, too. And what's more, people are pointing and laughing at us because we can't let it go. We know that. We get it. And yet, and this is the second thing, <laughs> we still, still absolutely think rock and roll from the classic era, the best of it, is fucking amazing. Rock and roll really has been life-affirming and life-changing for us, and probably for you too listening here. And there's a lot of us who feel strongly that way, and who believe that it's an actual true art form, that it is worth taking seriously. And we're going to preach that gospel till we run out of voice. Pete Townsend summed up this whole discussion pretty well. Uh, rock is dead, they say. <laughs> well, long live rock. So, what brought on all this classic rock navel-gazing? Another undeniable fact. The gods of rock are dying off. Slowly, but surely. Well, actually not that slowly. It's been quite the funeral procession these last couple of years. Uh, Prince, David Bowie, Tom Petty, and now the Queen of Soul. Yes, even Keith Richards will one day stumble and lose his long foot race with the Grim Reaper. We'll keep rooting for you, Keith, but Mr. Reaper always wins in the end. So, Twilight of the Gods is pretty great as both a title and a thesis statement about the state of rock and roll today. As for Steeden Hyden, a few bullet points about his writing career. It's really impressive. He started writing for publication while he was still a teenager, he grew up on 80s and 90s rock, but like many fans, when he heard someone he really liked, he went to the roots and listened to the records that influenced his heroes. He's been writing about all of that with strong prose and lots of attitude ever since. He's got bylines all over the place, including Uproxx, The AV Club, Salon.com, Rolling Stone, and he was a staff writer for the Gone But Not Forgotten sports and culture website, Grantland.com. By the way, his work at Grantland is archived there, so you can still find it. He writes, records, and produces the Celebration Rock podcast, and he's got a really good active Twitter feed. Uh, we recommend all of the above. And of course, his latest book, Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock, available now, both in ebook and, of course, the old Dead Trees format. So, let's do it. Let's talk with Mr. Stephen Hyden. Pepper talked 
Welcome to Deeper Digs and Rock, Stephen Hyden. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you doing? I am fantastic. So let's get into it here. Uh, why do you think it was time to write a book on the demise of rock and roll? Now, I, I know you put it as classic rock, and you, you give the beginning and ending dates as the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper as Genesis and uh, Nine Inch Nails as the Fragile as um, um, uh, Revelations. So I, I have to ask on the justification of timeline. Well, I think the the thinking behind the book, when I talk about in the, 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 the subtitle of the book is A Journey to the End of Classic Rock. It, yeah. it, it's really talking about the classic rock generation of the 60s and 70s and like how we're reaching the point now where a lot of those musicians are either retiring from the road or in many cases they've, they've passed away. And certainly in the last couple of years, we've seen people like David Bowie, Tom Petty, Greg Ullman, a number of other Prince. very famous people, Prince, pass away. And it was really a reference to that, talking about that that generation of artists. And I feel like we're at a moment now where people are, you know, we're talking about this music. And I think whether the music lives on, that's a whole separate question. But what can't be argued is that we will reach a point where all these great musicians that have been so prominent in culture for, for decades, uh, you know, they will eventually not be around anymore. And I think for a lot of people, certainly people of my generation, you know, I'm, I'm 40 years old. So bands like Pink Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, the Beatles, the Stones, you know, I got into those bands decades after they first started making music. And in a way, those, the, those bands, they were, they were real, but there was also something sort of mythological about them. You know, there was oh, something that was almost time. Yeah. Oh, there was. Yeah, like larger than life. Now, like I, 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 I got, grew up with those guys, in, and yeah. they were they they came out the gate mythological. <laughs> exactly. And, but there was something I think very interesting. Like like I think if you are maybe a little bit younger and you get into these these bands, it's like they almost always existed. Yeah. as they were in the 70s, you know, because of classic rock radio, because of rock documentaries and books, they're frozen in ember. And it's unbelievable in a way when someone like David Bowie dies, because it's it's almost like they can't die. You you think of them as like Batman or Superman or something, and then, and then they're gone. And there's something that is very profound about that, where it's not just about losing these great musicians, it's about grappling with mortality in a way it's about realizing that nothing lasts and like even things that you thought would be immortal you know at some at, at some point go away so i mean so that was really the inspiration for the book you know the passing of these rock stars and just sort of contemplating in the next decade or so like what's it going to be like to see more of these great people pass away uh so yes yeah, so that was really the starting point uh for me writing the book all right. Well, well. Hey, uh, let's get a little about you. Uh, what is the Stephen Hyden superhero origin story? <laughs> well, I mean, I write about this in the book. I mean, I'm from the Midwest. I'm from Wisconsin, and uh, you know, I'm a Generation Xer. And uh, when I started getting into music as a kid, like in the late '80s, early '90s, you know, I was a big fan of the music that was happening at the time. You know, I, I loved Nirvana. I loved Pearl Jam. I, I was totally into grunge and alternative rock and all that. But there was also something kind of parallel happening at the same time where I was listening a lot to classic rock radio, uh, which it was very interesting, you know, 
coming to it at that age because i mean the reality is that classic rock radio really had not been around very long as a format you know this idea of like radio playing artists from 10 15 20 years past their peak and kind of playing the same songs over and over again i mean that was something that kind of started to happen in the early 80s well, there, and, was, there was the oldie station i remember that in the in the 70s uh you know and uh, the nostalgia factor uh yeah you know I, I think the first time i really noticed it was uh, you know famously with uh um uh happy days uh you know, right tv you know all of a sudden it's like oh the 50s are cool and then i would go to like you you know, church dances and things like that, and it had a, a 50s motif to it. And that was the first time I was like, oh, something from 20 years ago is interesting and cool again. Right. It, what's interesting about the classic rock bands, though, is that unlike, say, like those bands from the 50s, the classic rock bands kind of still hung around. I mean, they were still touring. They were still, yeah, in many ways, still making still hits. Them. I mean, you know, the the first age of rock and roll, you know, it's really down to about five or six guys. Uh, right. You know? And, uh, you know, in fact, uh, you know, there's a lull, especially in American rock, between 1960 and 1964. Um, but uh, but I think you got a point that, you know, the, the, these, these classic rock bands – a number one that there was a, a, a enough of them to sustain a business model that uh, you know constantly you could uh, you could make some money on the road at least and and drum up enough uh, interest so people would uh, go out and buy your records in the newest format uh, you know be it albums eight tracks cassettes CDs on and on. Well, and I think too you know because you you brought up the timeline that I write about in the book and. By the way, I know people are going to like hear that I write about Nine Inch Nails in a classic rock book, and they're going to be flipping out. But I, uh, but believe no, me, like when you read the book, it's, it's, it, it, yeah, yeah, I'm with but, but like one of the things I talk about in the book is that I think like as a as a '90s kid, basically coming to this music, there was something contemporary about it in the sense that like if you were a Pearl Jam fan, there was a line between Pearl Jam and the classic rock bands. Like it, they were clearly influenced yeah. by that, uh, yeah. and, and, and Pearl Jam was like you know making records with Neil Young in in the 90s. And, you know, Nirvana was covering David Bowie in, in the 90s on the yeah, on yeah. plug record. Yeah. And there was a sense of continuity at that time between sort of contemporary rock and classic rock that I think started to break a little bit by the end of the 90s mm. because of a variety of factors. I mean, just how the music industry basically ended at the end of the 90s, at least the, the, the way that it used to exist in the 20th century. Like, once oh, the internet comes in and you can... Yeah, Napster, yeah. Napster, you know, everything kind of changed dramatically mm -hmm. um, at that point. Um, so, so that's what that came in. But, yeah, I mean, I, I to me, it was just such a profound thing getting into this music um, when I was a kid. And I think, I didn't really think about this at the time, but I think what drew me to classic rock in a way was the sense of the, the continuum of music. The idea that you could like plug into this and feel connected to something that happened 30 or 40 years ago and feel like it was relevant to you now. And, you know, there was something kind of very spiritual about that, I think, in a way. You know, it made me feel connected to something that was bigger than myself getting into this kind of thing. And again, I don't know if I thought about that consciously when I was 12, you know, but looking back on it, I think that was something that I probably felt unconsciously at the time.
Were you uh, were your parents uh, musically inclined, or was music uh, around the house a lot? I mean, you know, my dad had some Beatles CDs, so I mean, that was my exposure to that. But it's not like he introduced it to me. You know, he didn't say he didn't sit me down and play me Sergeant Pepper and say you should listen to this. I, I dug it Don't out. Be a as test the- at the end of this, <laughs> right? Exactly. Like I dug it out of the drawer myself and i and i listened to it and i remember being very confused the first time i played it because you know there's crowd noise on the record at the beginning and i'm like is this like a live album or you know and 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 it was like and then they were talking about you know like billy shears and there's that right yeah it's like what you know but that sounds like Ringo, it's like I knew who Ringo Starr was. I'm like, that sounds like Ringo Starr, but Billy Shears is singing the song, you know. So I, I didn't, but I was fascinating, you know. I didn't, I didn't understand it. It was something about it that like had to be deciphered, you know. There was, there was a mystery to it that was very intriguing to me, and you know, and I was starting to read rock criticism around the same time too, like reading and reading like Rolling Stone from the library, and you know, I, I write in the book about how in. Um, I think it was 87 Rolling Stone put out oh, their greatest albums yeah. mm-hmm. list. And I, you know, I'm, I, I don't, I don't think that was necessarily the first list like that, but I've talked to other people around my age who have had similar stories about how that was a very seminal list for them because it was sort of like the first time that the rock cannon was laid out in a very sort of plain way. And you could like, if you didn't know anything about rock music, you could you could read that issue and you had sort of a guidebook for how to get into this sort of thing. And before the Internet, you know, that was a, an invaluable resource, you know, for, for, for budding rock fans like myself. Well, uh, you know, the, the, the timeline thing, I mean, I, there, there's been, uh, you know, uh, calls of uh, the time of death uh, many times in the past. Uh, you know, 1959, uh, when the, the originals were uh, sent packing for one reason or another, you know, Elvis to the army, Chuck to jail, Little Richard uh, to the priesthood, and, uh, uh, and Buddy Holly uh, and Richie Valens uh, in the plane crash. Uh, uh, and uh, and then again, uh, you know, some would say that uh, that uh, 1973 was like you know that final moment, or maybe it was the punk movement in '76. Or, but you know, you start to get into the mid '80s, and and the 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 the, the art form has matured at that point. So that that's a good time for Rolling Stone to have come out with a list and kind of said, okay, you know, we've probably hit peak. Which looking back, that's probably Probably not too far from where it uh, where it might have been, um, and here's uh, you know here's our first stab at the cannon. Well, I also feel like Rolling Stone did that because it coincided with their 20th anniversary, and they were trying to define rock, the rock era sort of in a very self-serving way like you know what i mean because well but it's not you know because i mean i write about this in the book too about you know how the rock cannon is made and like these lists that come out and like how music magazines always sort of define the era that they're ranking these albums by when the magazine was around like spin magazine did the same thing like they started in 85 and when they would do their best of list it would be 85 the best albums from 85 to 95 or the best albums from 85 to 2005 and 
you know, when you had Rolling Stone making the list, you know, they would always put Sgt. Pepper number one. But so, like, when Spin did their list, you know, they couldn't put Sgt. Pepper at number one. You know, there was sort of a, there was like a reactionary thing. So, like, now you look at lists and, like, Revolver would be the best right. Beatles album. Or, or like, like, you know, or like if, you know, like Pitchfork, you know, the big indie music site, like, if they do a list, they're going to probably put a pavement record up there, or they're going to put like neutral milk hotel, you know, they're going to put something that they feel like is relevant to their audience because there always has to be this element of like generational provincialism. When people rank these things, it's like, well, we can't like, well, the baby boomers are just going to force their taste on us. So we're going to, you know, we're going to take out these classic rock albums and we're going to put in punk albums. We're going to put in rap records. And then another generation comes along and they're like, well, we're sick of hearing, what you like we're going to put in what we like and uh you know so like the, the way the canon is made it is we're all informed by our experiences in, right. in uh, the magazines exactly and then and again yeah and the, that self-serving thing about like well we are at the center of the of, universe of the universe yeah so we're going to define the rock era by like when we started as a magazine yeah. you know which i think rolling stone i think their first issue came out like after sergeant pepper yes it did came out so like so they kind of bent their own rules to include it although i think they eventually included like blonde on blonde came out in 66 so i think they probably bent it to include that but you know it's just it's fascinating how that's done but every generation does that um but certainly the boomers have had a more sort of like uh They've been a little bit more more overbearing, I guess, in that regard, you know. But I say that as a Gen Xer, so I have my own biases with that. Well, I, I am right on the cusp, so uh, <clears throat> I see it from both sides. But right, you know, <clears throat> you know, I, I definitely feel that, you know, uh, rock and roll as a cultural touchstone, as the art form as it was, um, you know, it, it's never going to play in the charts uh, again. Uh, it's uh, it, it's had its moment. I think I don't even think you know. I've been asked many times, you know, well, what music is, and I, and I think well, it's not even music. It's social media. That's that's what the kids are after these days. That's what informs their experiences more so. When I was growing up, we we didn't have social media. We had the music, and the and the music was how we spoke to each other. Uh, if you liked a certain kind of music, you were you know with a certain group of guys and uh, and girls, and uh, uh, and that's just you know a, a, a different thing. And I and I and I. I think that helps to explain that this, you know, this 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 art form, you know, which had a good 50 year ish run, um, you know, is probably uh, uh, for all intents and purposes, um, you know, pretty much had its had its say. Yeah, it's you know, it, it's weird because I still write about music. I listen to new bands all the time. I'm very excited by what I hear. I, again, like what I get so excited about hearing a new band and being able to see how they connect in the larger sort of narrative of rock history. And I love doing that. I love hearing something new and being able to be like, oh, this is kind of like they're kind of picking up where this 
picked off. And, you know, like you hear the war on drugs, which is a great, you know, sort of recent ish rock band. You can yeah. listen to them and go, Oh, they're, they're kind of picking up where Tom Petty and Bruce Springsteen left off, even though they're not really yeah. sort of slavishly recreating sonically what they're doing. Um, right now, Greta Van Fleet, uh, you know, Greta Van Fleet talks about them. Yeah. Right. Right. And which is very exciting to me, but I mean, you're right in the sense that, you know, I think one thing that happened with, with, with rock music is that, the victory in the culture was so complete yeah. that it became so pervasive that it almost becomes invisible, that it's very hard to know now what is sort of the rock culture, you know, because you can see elements of rock kind of everywhere in music. You can see it in elements of pop music. You can see it in, certainly in elements of country music. Oh, God, yeah. Country can, is classic rock these days. But, but it doesn't have the same sort of cultural sort of meaning or identity that it had. It no. doesn't – and I think that's probably the ultimate – fate of anything that becomes that pervasive that it becomes part of the wallpaper in a way and it's like what like what is it's like when it's everywhere you can't even see it you know and i think that's in a way what happened with with rock music i mean there's still a rock culture out there you know certainly like in indie rock world and punk and like sort of the underground but you're but yeah i mean you're not gonna like turn on an award show and see sort of like a classic four piece band uh, playing riffs, you know, no. the, and, and sort of like they're, that. They're just there thing. to uh, promote the new person who the Grammys or what have you are are really trying to to get the kids to watch. But you know, I think in my book, you know, it, it's really trying to get at why this because you know one of the things i i, I kind of grapple with in the book is trying to define what classic rock is and i and i kind of come up with my own definition that i use in the book and it's very reliant on how it was defined by sort of the corporate classic rock radio format yeah. because i think that for a lot of people you know because you know there's always this discussion about like was well, classic rock sort of a qualitative statement like when you say classic rock are you talking about the best rock or are you talking about sort of you know the music that was like the most influential or something like i think some people almost take it as like a value judgment or you know if you're going to call something classic rock that's why like if you call like in the book i write about ario speedwagon and people might say well they're not a classic rock band they're not you know the stooges are our classic rock band because they're 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 a much better band oh, to which i with the changes man that's a great song but it's like well it's like i like the stooges more than ario speedwagon but oh, to me our, yeah but Ario Speedwagon to me is a classic rock band because yes. they get on classic rock radio. They're sort of part of that common identifying thing that people are talking about. So I'm very fascinated by that archetype and like why that became something that just transcended so many different generations. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, I mean, that's, that's such a unique thing that you, and you don't really see that anywhere else in in culture i guess other than like maybe with movie stars or something like tom cruise being a movie star for 35 years that's maybe analogous to like you two being around for that long but yeah. for the most part you know the the fact that so many of these bands that like bruce springsteen can still play stadiums um and also still matter to like so many young musicians like i interview so many 
musicians who are like in their early 20s and they all love bruce springsteen like he's like a woody guthrie figure now to them and it's just really fascinating like how that happened and i think there's a lot of different reasons for that and that's kind of what i try to explore in the book uh kind of using myself as an example of that because uh, there's no real reason why i would have listened to this music but it was something that was really fascinating to me and it, and it was like a contrast to the pop music that i was hearing at that time the the idea that pop music i think what's great about pop music is that it's very ephemeral you know and that it's of the moment and the moment is what matters yeah. and when well, I you think know, it's made that way as well. I think exactly. Companies actually go out of their way to, you know, to, to give you candy that you will right. suck on and for, you know, until it's gone. And then they will replace it with another piece of candy. And that's and that's what it is made to do. And it's what's terrible about it. And it's what's glorious about it. You know, <laughs> right. Both of no, those things are true. Yeah, yeah. But like, I think as a kid, you know, there was something in me that wanted something else. And I think what it's the same instinct that drew the generation or two before me into folk music and, and into blues, you know, like the sixties generation, mm -hmm. they, they started listening to that music because they felt like it was something that more authentic uh, than uh, what they were getting on the, on the radio, on pop radio. And, you know, and the word, in the word authentic is kind of a problematic word. I mean, I don't, I wouldn't even use that word. I would just say that it, it, it's something that existed before you were, you were born. And it kind of, feels like it's of the earth maybe or it's elemental it's like something that didn't it was invented at some point but it doesn't feel invented and there's a power to that and um and i felt that when i listened to that i mean to hear led zeppelin 4 when i was 13 you know that album was only 20 years old at the time but 20 years old when you're 13 that's, that's like ancient history yeah yeah totally oh yeah and there was something, it, and it was very, or, or Dark Side of the Moon. There was, it, you know, like Dark Side of the Moon, it was like seeing the monolith in 2001, and I was like a monkey touching it, you know what I mean? <laughs> and, you, and you got smarter. <laughs> exactly. And it was, or listening to The Doors or something. Like it, that, there was something um, very attractive about it and also kind of scary, but you felt like you were going to go on a journey if you if you listen to this stuff and that, that was going to kind of take you beyond the world that you were in and um i felt that very strongly and of course you know i'm sure people hear that and roll their eyes because you know? <laughs> <laughs> not, not me not me uh, and probably not most of our audience but because because uh, yeah, we all buy because we all bought in, man. Yeah, we all bought yeah. into the mythology, but you know, it, and I still buy into it. I can look at it. I can deconstruct it as a critic, and I can look at it dispassionately, and and uh, you know, and I can point out like how these things were fabricated, and I can. In, in my book, my book romanticizes a lot of this stuff, but it also looks at the dark side of it and, and debunks it in a way. But at the end of the day, I still believe in it. You know, I can. I can point out the holes i can point out the hypocrisies and you know the the downsides of a lot of this stuff but at the end of the day i'm still a true believer you're you know? still sitting in the pews wherever you, whenever you get a chance so <laughs> right. I, I like how you break the book up into a double album four sides <laughs> of a concept album uh, right. each with about four to six tracks uh, a chapter um so break down the four sides for our diggers well, okay, so the book begins with me just 
talking about how I got into this kind of music. And, you know, it's interesting because like when you, I, I wrote a book before this called your favorite band is killing me. And it's a book about music rivalries. And I, you know, you go online and you read good, good reads reviews of, of the book. And, you know, anytime you use first person in a book that instantly turns some people off because they're like, I don't want to hear about you. I don't want, I want to, I want you to talk about the subject, but you know, in the case of this book, the reason I, I use first person is that I felt like my experience was like pretty common, you know, that a lot of people had probably gone through a similar thing. So like I write about how I got into the radio and like how, you know, being a music fan before the internet, that was how you learned about music. Like you listened to the radio and you went to record stores and that, and I had how cool. very, how quaint. And, you know, and I, you know, I, I would ride my you bike. You had to make decisions. You, yeah, it, yeah, there was work involved. There was work involved. And, you know, I always joke about this, but, you know, if I had to go buy a cassette tape, which is what I bought before I bought CDs and, and long before I bought any vinyl records, I had to ride my bike. It was like an hour to the record store and it was like Lord of the Rings. So it was like an epic journey. To <laughs> oh, the photo, right. <laughs> and it was like, you know, lots of traffic and uh, it was kind of intimidating to do it. And, um, and you of course, you know, feet. <laughs> well, I kind of, <laughs> um, but, uh, and you know, I don't ever want to be that older person who like rom overly romanticizes the hardships of the past. Because if you had told me as a kid that, I could one day punch in the name of any record I ever wanted to hear into a box mm -hmm. and I could hear it instantly. I would have taken that over going to a record store. I mean, but I am glad that I grew up when I did because there was something special about it and there was a thrill to the hunt and it was really exciting to find a record that I only read about. You know, there were so many records that I had only ever, I, that I'd never heard at all. And like like the Velvet Underground, yeah. I'd never I'd never heard the you know I'd never heard that album. I only read about it in that Rolling Stone record guide. So I had to imagine what it sounded like, and then to see it in a store and to know like you know it might be like a year or two after I had first read about it, you know a, a year or two of just imagining what this would sound like, and now you actually get to hear it. I mean that was a very exciting thing. You know, which again, like you, you can't even really articulate that to someone now. I mean, that, that, that it sounds like I grew up on the frontier in the 1800s or something, but that's really how it was for me. So anyway, so that's like the first part of the book. And then the second part of the book is talking about, you know, just sort of, I, I talk about specific artists a lot. Like there's, there's a chapter on like Bob Dylan, yeah. there's a chapter on Bruce Springsteen and like. Just, just because they were both very important to me and still are uh, when I was growing up, but also to talk about Springsteen as a way to talk about live concerts and like why concerts and the rock show is such a big part of being a rock fan. Unlike I think every other genre, I don't think they, I don't think any other genre fetishizes the rock show uh, the, the, like the, the concert, concert experience, experience no as much as like rock fans do yeah. and then and then bob dylan was also was a way to talk about albums how albums are such a totemistic thing like the, the sort of a truth delivery device you know for people and like how when i was growing up reading about music bob dylan was always the person that 
he was like the top guy. He was the guy that you oh, had. Yeah. To yeah, yeah. Everybody. Th- yeah. Oh man. If, if, and like, if you don't I, understand Dylan, you don't understand rock and roll. Exactly. He was of a which you could never understand Dylan, but I <laughs> right. right. And he, and it took me forever to get into Bob Dylan. Like it took me years. I, I, I didn't get Bob Dylan for the longest time. And then of course, once I once it clicked, he it was I was totally obsessed and and and, and still am to this day. I mean, he's still like, uh, you know, probably my favorite artist of any kind. You know, uh-huh. oh yeah. I mean, like it's weird because you know talking about Springsteen and Dylan, you know, the difference is like, someone like Springsteen, he embraces being a hero. Yeah. He embraces the audience. The working class hero. Yeah, yeah. And he, le- he and took he le- all the elements and fused it together to create the perfect American rock and roll star. Absolutely, and 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 he welcomed all of the adulation that Dylan rejected. Like Dylan would intentionally do things to um, let people down in a way, and then you go back twenty years later and you realize that he was actually doing something pretty brilliant, mm. you know. And I think one of the things I write about in the book is his Christian era, yeah. uh, which was the last era of his that I got into. And then I became totally converted. And that was before this box set came out, that the, the Christian era box set that came out last year, um, which includes um, his Toronto show in 1980, which was a bootleg for a long time. And that was a, a big turning point for me in appreciating that era just because his band in that time was so great like jim keltner playing drums and this guy i can't remember his guitar player's name he was in little feet but he just had an incredible band and um like the live recordings are like way better than the albums which is true for a lot of bob dylan stuff but um mm-hmm. uh, but anyway um I'm so getting that's a little side two. That's side. That's side two. <laughs> side three. Side three is starting to talk about sort of the downsides. Kind of, it, it, it's like where the story turns. You know, like every rock story needs the the glorious rise, and then there's the fall, and 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 that's talking about a couple things. I mean, talking about sort of the 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 downside of the sort of the decadence of rock and roll, which was a very attractive thing for me, and. If I'm being honest, it still is. You know, I'm probably not alone in when I listen to the Rolling Stones at home. If I put on XL on Main Street on vinyl, it's really hard for me not to start drinking bourbon and <laughs> beer and smoking maybe, and, Yeah, like that. It's like, you know, where you listen to. Have you gotten but, into the smack lately? No, no, I've never gone that far. I'm, I'm just drinking. Because brown. that's what they were doing. But <laughs> yeah, Right, right, right. I don't. I, yeah, I'm not doing like black tar it's just brown liquids for me you know so oh, and here i thought you were going full experience no 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 not even blow i'm not doing blow <laughs> uh but you know so you know talking about that stuff and also yeah. talking about you know like the sexism certainly yeah. of yeah. of rock yeah. the ways that you know kind of getting back to the canon about how like, the weird ways that genres were designed to keep classic rock exclusively almost white and male right and how there were certain how there's so many different artists that you could have included certainly on classic rock radio that would have fit that didn't get played you know i think certainly like the division between like rock and like soul music is sort of a 
totally fabricated thing that should oh, have I never recognized the line anymore. I mean, it, it, certainly at the time there was a line. There's no right. two ways about it. But nowadays, you know, funk and soul, that, of course, that's fucking rock and roll. Of course, it's like if you, you know, like like Otis Redding. Oh, my God, clearly my one my favorite. Clearly, yeah, you know, clearly one of the greatest rock singers ever, who like influenced so many singers. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, like starting, you know, Rod Stewart. Any any sort of like big voice raspy guy, Janis Joplin, you know, right. her, whole, her whole shtick was built on Otis, right? So, um, so talking about that, so that's side three, and then side four is sort of the redemption, like kind of like looking at uh, where rock is now, and also like where the mythology can go. I think that one of the things I write about, like in sort of like in the closing chapters is how I think the way forward is to get past some of the old archetypes that I still love, but like, I think you also need to open it up a little bit and it it can't just be about, you know, dudes in leather pants drinking Jack Daniels and playing long guitar solos, you know, which again, like I love a lot of people that you could describe that way, but you know, so there's something about when people try it to does do that look kind of uh, weird now. Yeah. It's it just, you know, it's, 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 it's anachronistic, you know? you know, what's funny is that of all the genres and uh, I don't think I'm wrong in this. The only genre that hasn't made its 20 year uh, reprise uh, is like hair metal. Well, it's interesting because, um, I mean, there's hair metal and there's also things like, like rap rock, you know, which became a big, which mm. really, if we're talking, you know, and I didn't really, I didn't really talk about this in the book, but I mean, a band like Korn, for instance, is like one of the last kind of truly, truly enormous rock bands yeah. that there ever were. Like, like I think people forget how big they were. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actually writing something about them right now uh, for an upcoming piece. But, you know, like in the early 2000s, you know, people were talking about the Strokes and the White Stripes and like all the New York City sort and of like neo stuff. Yeah. Right. But like, you know, Korn put out a record in 2002 called Untouchables that cost $4 million to make. Just a ridiculous amount of money was spent on this by the record label. And uh, Jonathan Davis, the lead singer of of Korn, has called it like the new metal Asia, talking about the Steely Dan record Asia, because it's it's like it's such an immaculately produced and sounding uh, album. And there's no way anyone's ever going to spend four million dollars on a rock record ever again. No, way. you know that's like something out of like the seventies or the eighties. You know, yeah, that's like that's like and, uh, Night at the Opera, right? Exactly, um, or like Use Your Illusion one and two or something. Like you know, no one no one would spend that amount now. So like they were kind of like the last rock band that could pull that off. You know, which is kind of an amazing thing. Um, but you know, yeah, it's weird. Like with uh, the hair metal thing too. Like there isn't a band, like a rock band, that looks like Poison. But um, you know, you can look at like some country acts. There was there was a one and, and the darkness, if you remember, right? And th- that was made as almost a joke. Uh, well, yeah. You know, and 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 like it's funny. It, it, you do see like the there are some. Um, cover tribute 
bands to that era. But again, it's played as a joke. Well, I think, you know, if you're looking for the spirit of that, I almost think it's, you know, something like Florida Georgia Line, you know, like the country band, mm-hmm. where it's like these country bands that like, it's like blonde lead singers like in cut off shirts who are just singing about like girls and trucks and stuff well like, isn't, isn't isn't country mostly male and white yeah well yeah exactly i mean <laughs> but you know but i mean you're onto something there i mean i think like if you are purely replicating something from the past like it doesn't really work because it becomes almost like a civil war reenactment type thing <laughs> people don't really buy into it right. but it's like like you have to the, the the key is always to take something and uh make it maybe you're plugging into the spirit of something but you're not slavishly recreating it like you do it in a way where people say oh that reminds me of that but like you're not that and as you put in the book uh with the british uh first wave british bands you know they were they were all trying to be blues bands and they were horrible at it so they created something new exactly Uh, you know even the blues guys were like okay that's interesting but that ain't blues." (laughs) yeah i remember like i forget who it was i don't know if it was like Sonny Boy Williamson or, or, or some guy like that, he was talking about how he had some quote where he was like, the British guys, they want to play the blues so bad, yeah. and they play the blues so, so bad. So bad, yes, that's, you know? that's exactly Because, like, they would, you know, um, <laughs> and, but, but then but again, it's like, something new. Right, like, you listen to the animals, and you're like, the animals, yeah, they don't sound like Holland Wolf, but they have their own thing that's really powerful yeah. you know so they're kind of drawing on that and like you know I, I there's a chapter in my book about fish and uh where i talk about them in a way being like a postmodern classic rock band because i feel like they do a lot of the things that bands in the 70s did but well they there's took something... all the all the piece parts almost kind of like what bruce did uh to create the perfect rock star uh they did uh inverse in, in, in inverse they they took like you know some zappa uh, they took some big rock arena stuff um and some funk and then they threw that in a blender and they did it in a way where it's like this totally unique blend of reverence and irreverence where they can i think evoke that era from a place of genuine affection and yet you know they're not wearing costumes. They're not wearing the bell bottoms and like the clothes. Fishman. Fishman's wearing a costume, <laughs> right? And yeah, exactly. He's wearing the dress. He wears the dress. But, but I mean, like you know, they're not dressing like it's nineteen seventy three. No, no, no. And and like if they cover like Freebird, yeah. they'll do it like a cappella. Oh, you know, they do, they do an entire album. Uh, you know, the musical mask uh, for Halloween that they uh, they pull out every once in a while. I don't know if they still do it, but they used to. Yeah, they still do. Halloween, yeah. And there's always just like a little bit of a twist that's not jokey necessarily, but it's not a slavish recreation of something. It's like evoking something while also being something new, which I think is always the balance that like the best rock bands are able to strike. You know, where like, you know, when you talk about Led Zeppelin, you know, it's always interesting because people talk about Led Zeppelin like stealing music from from blues people, and certainly they they did, yes. like Especially literally the first that. Time. Yes, <laughs> but but at the same time, when you listen to Led Zeppelin, you're not going to mistake them and for Robert Johnson. It's clear that they are doing something. Like you listen to a Zeppelin record, they're not trying because they can't. You know, they can't sound like country blues people from the '30s, even if they're like lifting lyrics without getting credit, which was a horrible thing to do, obviously. But 
they still they they could be reverent of that music, but they couldn't help but be different from it because of the distance from where they were and from where the source material was. And like with Fish, you know, they're not going to be a classic rock band because they grew up in a different era. They don't have the same sort of mystique that those people had, but they bring something else to it that is better. Like it's better for them that they don't have, that they can't sort of slavishly recreate something. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think that's, that, that's just fascinating. I mean, I, I don't know. So I, is, I, is the, is the jam band scene, the, uh, the, the future of rock and roll? Well, you know, I think that's one place. I, I think there's lots, but I think you know, like when you look at indie rock now, there are so many women making music now. There are yeah. so many like, you know, like uh, artists of color making music. There's like LGBTQ musicians that are like way more accepted than they ever were in the seventies uh, and eighties. And they are sort of remaking a lot of these myths for new audiences and making it relevant for new audiences in a way that like a traditional rock band never could. And I think that's another place where there's the future. You know, one of the things I talk about in the book, you know, because again, like I, I didn't want to write a death of rock book because I, I don't think that there's going to be a time, certainly in the near future anyway, where people don't love and care about this music. I mean, I think it, it's, it's definitely going to still have an audience. You know, the question is, once Bruce Springsteen can't tour or once the Stones can't tour, what will happen to their music? And I'm curious to see what will happen in 10 or 20 years. Are we going to see hologram tours? I feel like that, you know, we're already starting to see that a little bit. Oh, oh we are. I, uh, I know Roy Orbison uh, is going out on tour here. Uh, and uh, I just sat down with Ahmet Zappa. And uh, yeah. Frank Zappa is going on on tour next year. And uh, I'll tell you, uh, Ahmet showed me some of the uh, video scenes that uh, they're going to do. And it's way beyond just frank up there you know playing guitar licks well and it's so. it, you know well it's fascinating too because i have interviewed um it as well and you know there's obviously been a lot of controversy with the frank zappa tour there's a lot of people that don't like even in their own family like dweezil i think has spoken out against I that think everybody's and, on board now are they all on board because i mean it's recent it's recent the family just kind of got it all back together i feel like um there's still like a little bit of squeamishness with this sort of thing. And I think, and I think that will be, that will go away as soon as someone does it really well. And that's what I think. think That's kind of what I saw with and, and heard from what Amit this. It's not just, you know, uh, yeah. Seeing Tupac at Coachella, you know, walk around like he was there was, I'm sorry. It was creepy. Um, Right. but if it's like Frank and all the characters from Frank's song that show up in a holographic experience that is something out of Disneyland on acid, that sounds awesome to me. Right. Or if you could go see Pink Floyd, like a version of Pink Floyd where maybe you could go see the wall tour, you know, a version of that or something like that. Yeah. You can, you yeah. can see like in immersive experience, in an immersive experience. Yeah. Right. And see David Gilmore just standing on top of the wall playing comfortably numb or something that, that could be cool. I, which, I, I, which I did get to see in 1980. See, that would have been amazing. <laughs> it was, uh, it but, was amazing. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I write about, um, 
like in the last chapter of the book, I write about uh, the uh, Joe Russo's Almost Dead, which oh, is like yeah, the dead band, the, the dead cover band, which is kind of takes the dead to a whole nother level. Yeah. And like how they have it's interesting w- with them because and I think there's still a lot of potential to be worked there. But in a way, what they're doing with the dead, it reminds me of the British rock bands of the 60s and how they approach the blues and like how they sort of would take these blues songs and then invent new music out of it. And in a way, a lot of these tribute bands, they almost treat the Grateful Dead as like a collection of blues songs. Like we're going to take these these sort of established this established repertoire that everyone knows and we're going to extrapolate it in our own way. And that's how we're going to make new music. And that's um, not too fa- dissimilar from what the dead did themselves. Right, exactly. And it's been fascinating, too, to see how the dead themselves, the members of the dead, have almost acted as like mentors for a lot of these musicians that are now playing in tribute bands. Like all the guys in Joe Russo's Almost Dead, uh, I think I've played with members of the dead in various different iterations of like side projects and stuff. Um, so. You know, I'm curious about that. Like, you know, in a way, like, are we going to see like repertory companies playing these songs on the road? You know, like in the way you hear, you see symphonies playing classical composers. You know, yeah. long after they passed away. Yes, yes, exactly. I mean, you know, hey, you 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 know, you brought up classical music. You're you're talking about an art form that's uh, what 300 years old now, and uh, you know, there there's still edifices that are built. Uh, specifically for that music, and there's no reason why rock and roll wouldn't follow the same path. Yeah, I mean, certainly that era of rock and roll. I mean, you know, we'll, I guess we'll see what happens. I mean, I, I, it's always hard because look, everything eventually <laughs> fades. You know, I mean, I, maybe, I, you know, maybe like, not. I don't know. Jesus well, is still around. Well, like, okay, okay, but like, there's only one Jesus. You know, so like, who's going to be Jesus? You know, you know what I mean? It's, it's like not I think every you said Bob Dylan. Right, right. It could be him, or I mean, like, I would imagine, I would, I would most expect, like, you know, like let's say two hundred years. Like, I would expect maybe Beatles songs still being played. Oh, oh hell yeah! Oh, without you know, yeah. And maybe, and maybe that's the only one. I don't know. Oh, I mean, I, I, I don't, yeah. I, you know, I, I used to think so, but you know, uh, uh, and, and, and I'm going to switch subjects just a little bit, and we'll come back to this. But you know, you like us are, are big Joseph, are, are big Joseph Campbell fan. I, I think it's pretty obvious in uh, in how yeah. you put the book together because this is the hero's journey, and, right. and each each side of your concept album is you know a bit of the the, the hero's journey here so so let's totally. talk a little bit about the mythology because that is that's the key like you know like i said earlier uh, you know people like led zeppelin literally came out the gates born in mythology i mean they're almost put together like that i mean you you've, you've got a you know a viking god uh is the lead singer of the band you've got the the dark mysterious guitar player uh, there you know the berserker uh drummer that uh, holds the you know keeps the ship rowing uh uh it's it, it's just it's just amazing and so many bands of course just picked up on that vibe and then expanded upon that so because of the core of the book and i i think we're on the exact same wavelength i i think this is what is special about the art form of this 50 year ish uh rock and roll that's that was a t- 
touchstone for its times. And I, and I think the further away we get, the more important the story will become. Now, of course, that, that's going to depend on how the future is played out. You know, you're either going to get the naked dude on, 20, on 2112, uh, or, you know, you're going to have churches of rock and roll on every corner. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that the key is whether each successive generation finds their own way into that mythology. If there's some way that they can connect themselves to that, uh, I think it, I think it carries on. And it, it might be in indirect ways. You know, it's interesting because you do see the influence of, of classic rock on like modern pop music in more subliminal ways. And maybe that's the, the, the mythology working its course where it's so ingrained in the culture that people don't even always know where it comes from it's like why do people like why do rappers so many rappers still are like rappers now are have sort of picked up the torch of like being the decadent pop stars of of, of today Uh, like if you're going to see like people living large yeah, uh, in the way that the rock stars used to, like in the '60s and '70s, they're, they're going to probably it's be the most rappers. Used, most used, yeah. And like you know, like you you know, like I I, I think it was on Watch the Throne. Like uh, uh, Jay Z talks about like being like Black Axel Rose, you know, talking about you know sort of emulating Axel Rose in a way, and like how Axel Rose, of course, is descended from Steven Tyler and Jim Morrison, and you know, and that's how the mythology kind of goes on. It's like it it may not be such a obvious thing to a lot of people but it's like if you dig a little bit deeper you see like well where do these like why why do people feel the need still to put out albums you know like because again my book i talk about how albums are have really been diminished by technology but at the same time artists still insist on making albums like when <laughs> yeah Beyonce- it's a, it's it, that's a disconnect uh, I, yeah you know, I, I i mean i i know drake uh has kind of gotten the message that just you know write a song produce a good song and if you think it's good then put it put it out uh exactly you know, uh, one at a time uh and you know then you know after after five years you can go back and make as many albums as you want called the greatest hits one two and three <laughs> but i think that there's still something about the album as an artistic entity that is the musical version of a novel or a film or yeah. a painting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that that still has resonance for people, like whether well, it's Frank you Ocean. You put in the time and effort to make the entire thing worthy. Right. And, and, and you still see that with, you know, like certainly like Beyonce, like her last couple of records have been very much conceived as album type statements. And you hear her talking about it. And she talks about how, you know, she she wants to sort of make people sit down and absorb something from beginning to end and and, and see how all the songs connect to each other. That's a very sort of classic rock mythology type way of of looking at art, you know, like that. That's where that comes from. And uh, so so kind of going back to the point you were making about how these things become entrenched. And of course, classic rock mythology is itself sort of derived from these hero heroes journey type stories that are that have been passed down for you know centuries uh so it didn't just start with rock music of course but i think with a lot of music even now that isn't even rock music you know the, the things that people put significance on and that they value it does if you dig down a little bit deeper it does stem from this classic rock mythology you know the the things that mattered to that culture 
albums, live shows, you know, connecting with an audience, like that, that sort of stuff. Um, it's gone away, but not really, you know, it's kind of lurking in the background. Well, okay. So I got a serious question. What's the problem with Don Henley? <laughs> you know, it's funny because I have a love hate relationship with Don Henley and I think it comes through in the book. I take some shots at him. Um, but, and, and I write about the Eagles and I, and I write about the Eagles. I mean, look, the Eagles are insufferable people. I mean, are you a Lebowski fan? Well, yeah, of course. I wrote about it in the book. But, you know, but also their documentary is like one of the greatest rock documentaries ever. I, oh, I've seen God. that yeah. so many times. Oh, yeah. And like the history of and, the Eagles is you're like, wow, oh, you guys are going there. OK, yeah. But you don't but you don't watch that and think, oh, these guys are these are great guys. You know, like maybe <laughs> maybe Joe Walsh. I think Joe Walsh is legitimately awesome and he's yeah. a cool guy. I always exempt Joe Walsh. But, you know, like Don Henley is a pretty surly guy and he always was. But he also I mean, look, I think he wrote great lyrics. Consummate professional. I think he's a good songwriter. I think, you know, I, I respect him on that level. I mean, it's just like Jim Morrison. Like, I have a love-hate relationship with him, too. I think he is like – I mean, look, you, you can love the doors and acknowledge that Jim Morrison acts like a buffoon sometimes. But that's part of what's lovable about him, too. Like, he, he's a guy wearing leather pants, reciting poetry on stage. I mean, there's something sort of ridiculous about him, but also awesome. Like, he created an archetype for a lead singer that, you know, still has kind of been filtered down. Yeah. To, to, to people now so i mean I, you know and i think this is something that echoes throughout the book that um you know I, and i say this towards the end that i can acknowledge all the things that are bad about classic rock that that are corny that have not aged well that uh you know that are problematic but this is you know i think of it like america you know i'm, I'm a patriot I still love America, even though I, I can acknowledge all the things that are bad about America, all the things that America has done wrong. I can acknowledge all the things that classic rock has done wrong, but classic rock is still my country. You know, this is where I come from, and I will always well, love it. It is a reflection of America, so there's no surprise there. Right. Exactly. Totally. And it. so, you know, I, I don't – I mean, unless you're just a totally starry-eyed fan, you know – who can't ever see anything wrong with anything that you love. I mean, I think, I think we all kind of come from that. We can all listen to albums and go, Oh God, this drum solo is ridiculous. This doesn't need to be there. <laughs> but you also kind of love the drum solo. Cause like you, it's part of this thing. It's part of this package that you love. And it's like the excess of it is ridiculous, but it's also kind of glorious at the same time. So, you know, in the case of Don Henley, yeah, I think he's a jerk, but I think he's also a fascinating person. I love I could talk about Don Henley for hours. I think he's a, just and I think the Eagles are a fascinating band. Um, you know, I would never want to hang out with them, but I would love to I've read books about them. I've I've watched 4-hour documentaries about them. So, you know, I also love them at the same time. So, I want to ask you about uh, Charlie Gillett and the legacy artist. Um, can you give us a breakdown on his theory of legacy artists? Yeah, so Charlie Gillett was a he was a British disc jockey uh, and uh, he, he wrote a book in 1970 called The Sound in the City. Have you read that book? No. You haven't read that book. It's like one of the first um, really good comprehensive histories of like 
early rock and roll. It was like from the kind of like the mid fifties to the seven, like, I guess to mid fifties to the late sixties. And there was him. There was this guy named Nick Cohn. Yeah, well, Nick. Who, yeah, he wrote a book called The Wap Wap Yeah, yeah, I know that. And, one. He, he was another one, kind of early rock historian. There's Richard Meltzer was another one who wrote The Aesthetics of Rock, which was like a big pioneering rock criticism thing. And like one thing that all those guys had in common was this belief that rock and roll, which is which they called sort of early rock and roll or like 50s music, was sort of like the real rock and roll. That like it was music that was made for teenagers. It was unpretentious. It was, you know, dance music, songs about school and going steady cars. and all that, cars and all that. And like, they love that stuff. And then when you get to the late sixties, they, they delineate between rock and roll and rock and what they call rock music is. And in the book, I, I talk about Sergeant Pepper being the beginning of this, being a self-conscious art form that it's not just songs about school and frivolous things it's songs about adulthood it's adulthood and and, and making albums uh as serious artistic statements you know that like when sergeant pepper came out people talked about that as like a major event in the history of the 20th century you know people talked about that as even at as the time. Cap- yeah. even at the time as capital a art yeah. in a way that People didn't even about early Beatles records, as great as those records are. Um, and so Gillett talks about how, in his estimation, that record companies were very deliberate about sort of perpetuating the mythology of, of rock, that albums would have a certain significance, that it was good to see bands play live, that really that was sort of the purest way to see them because it was a way to create legacy artists as opposed to pop artists that it would in a way be easier to milk a band that could sell albums than a band that had to rely on singles, you know, cause if you can sell out albums, uh, you know, albums come out even back then, you know, they came out, you know, sometimes they come out every six months, but that was still a long time compared to singles, you know, singles would come out every like three months or something and it was just like a better business plan to milk these sort of legacy artists um so he writes about that in his book and doesn't know- that begin to like fall apart by the mid 80s because the record companies seem to prefer short-term contracts with bands that can be exploited over you know a five-year period and discarded for the new shiny thing i mean i think well, first of all, I don't know. I mean, it's not like pop music ever went away. I mean, there were, the record industry was still churning out oh, yeah. bubblegum music. And, you know, so the, I, mean, I think there's always been, I mean, w- the big thing that he talks about is, and he, again, he saw this as a negative, is the separation of, of rock music from pop music. Because for a long time, rock and roll and pop were synonymous. Like, you know, yeah. Elvis Presley mm-hmm. was... Yeah, making rock and roll, but it was pop. And in his estimation and other critics of that time, they talk about how rock and roll was basically separated from pop and turned into rock music, which was this more serious art form where if you were a rock fan, you kind of looked down on pop music. And it was very sort of a snobby attitude towards music that was basically for kids, you know. And, and they looked at, and you know, 
we talked earlier about the death of rock and roll. Well, that was an that was an early moment where, for those critics, they looked at that as as the death of rock and roll. You know, like they look at like these singer songwriters as being like sort of insufferable people. Like, you know, like oh, you're so pretentious. Like they looked at they missed the innocence of the early rock and roll. Um, and I don't necessarily subscribe to that point of view, but you know, it is a point of view that's put out there, and it it's interesting to see these things repeat throughout rock history because there, there is that sort of ongoing narrative where at various points, people will look back and they'll say, Oh, well the music mattered back then. It doesn't matter anymore. It's gotten too corporate. It's gotten too serious. It's gotten too stuffy. You know, like you see something like that kind of play out in the seventies when we, when you talk about the punk rock narrative you know that you hear over and over again that like every documentary made about the 70s shows like greg emerson playing like a long keyboard solo right. and then the line of western civilization right right it's like like he'll be playing a long keyboard solo then there'll be like a like a record scratch and then they'll show the sex pistols playing <laughs> anarchy in the uk and it's supposed Which to be like well, great classic rock <laughs> right exactly exactly and it's like and it, the idea is that punk killed progressive rock, which of course isn't true because prog rock continued after the Sex Pistols, and yeah, you can still see all those. Just a backlash to the backlash to the backlash. And it's, it's like it's just human interactions. And like when I was young, grunge supposedly killed hair metal, but like no, like Poison and Motley Crue continued on. Even like like you can I, like a big moment for me as a kid was watching the 1992. MTV Video Music Awards, and I I remember like in my mind's eye thinking like, well, that's when grunge took over because Nirvana was on that and Pearl Jam was on that. But if you go back and watch it, you know, Def Leppard was on that too, and Guns N' Roses played with like a huge orchestra, Nelton John, you know, <laughs> on that same show. So like those things kind of existed concurrently, even as those bands were blowing up, you know, and and, and that's how these things happen. It's not always, you know, the way that narratives get written it's always oversimplifying what actually happened, you know? So like all different kinds of things are happening at once usually. So it's not as if one thing comes in and it just destroys everything that happened before, you know, like those fans don't just disappear. Like there were still a lot of poison fans. There were still a lot of Def Leppard fans in 1992 and 93, you know, there still uh, are, there still are kiss yeah. fans. There's still kiss fans everywhere. So and, I can guarantee it. And you know what? I love Def Leppard and I love Nirvana. It's like you don't have to choose. Yeah. You can like both, wow. <laughs> you know? especially looking back. I mean, all those distinctions usually get melted away, you know, uh, once the sort of the the tempest of the time passes. And then we look back and it's like, well, yeah, why wouldn't you like both things? Oh, the, blur, the lines get blurred, of course. Yeah. Uh, so for classic rockers through the book, you give two poles on the planet. Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd. (laughs) Both bands arrive in the 60s just as rock is ascending, and both are giants during its great heyday of the 70s. So why those two? Well, you know, they were just... uh, Well, this is going to sound like a very myopic reason, but, I mean, when I was 13, I got Led Zeppelin 4, and I got Dark Side of the Moon. And... um, those were the albums I wanted because I had listened to the enough classic Testament rock in the New Testament. Right, exactly. I had listened to enough classic rock radio to know that um, 
those were you know two of the biggest albums in the canon and uh they were really great um they're just really great contrast um so yes i mean it was it was was definitely formed by my own experience but you know the the thing about those two bands in particular is that i think as much as any classic rock band even like the beatles i feel like for teenagers in particular there's still a, a draw to those bands that I think is, is, is unique. And I know it's still true because if you go to a head shop now, you still see Pink Floyd posters and you still see Led Zeppelin posters. I, I'd, I th- throw, I'd throw the doors in there as well. I think the doors, I think that's true too. And it's something to do with, with drugs, certainly. I think like they're all great drug bands. Um, <laughs> c- certainly Pink Floyd, you know, I think there's something very, you know, we're talking about mythology. Well, Jim's kind of a cautionary tale, but uh, yeah, the other two, uh, you know, yeah, okay. When I think even like the Doors, and I and again I, I like the Doors, but I think their records sound dated to me in the way that Zeppelin and Pink Floyd don't. Mm. I think I think that the way those records were just from a, just from a production, production standpoint, standpoint, right? Yeah, like um, you know Led Zeppelin to me, the way those records sound, they still just sound like the Platonic ideal of like what a rock band. Well, I, I think the technology, you know, was still being created um, uh, in the 60s. And uh, by the time you get into the 70s, you know, it's it's gotten to be um, uh, pretty well defined. When I think like Ray Manzarek's keyboard sound is very 60s. And like, again, like I love I love his sound. But like, you know, yeah, yeah. It's like it's it, it really ties it to the time probably more than anything else. Whereas like Led Zeppelin, you know you could certainly like let's up one two like whole lot of love sounds pretty 60s maybe but like for the most part they just sound like oh like a rock band and then and then pink floyd um you know there's elements of their music that um was you know was totally absorbed by other genres uh in particular electronic music you know where i mean they're a rock band playing rock instruments but in a way it doesn't sound like rock music yeah so like in a way that i think atmospheric almost uh, yeah or it is like an ambient thing and like and uh where i think for for a lot of people who maybe aren't into like heavy riffs or something like you can listen to pink floyd and it makes sense at least that album in particular you know um has that um but yeah, I mean, they were, you know, like Led Zeppelin, you know, just to re- just to be totally reductive, like Led Zeppelin was like sort of the primal band and like Pink Floyd was more of the cerebral band. You know, Led Zeppelin was like, you know, I'm a horny teenager type music, like very sort of like speaking to that side of myself. And then like Pink Floyd was like more of the sort of introspective side. And, you know, it's a great it's a great combination to listen to when you're 13. I mean, that's kind of like all you need, you know, um, you could ask, you could add Rush's hemispheres because then you have both sides right there. Well, and I love Rush, but I wasn't a big Rush fan at that time. I I, I think I had like Chronicles eventually, but you know, Rush was a little bit later for me. So you call out the most legendary performances of all time. Uh, The ones old geezers say, if you remember you weren't there, uh, Beatles on Ed Sullivan, Dylan going electric at Newport 65, uh, Hendrix at Monterey, and I, I, I'd throw all of Monterey in there. Woodstock, 
in Altamont. Interesting, all 60th performances, which, not just is your personal favorite, which is the one that you just felt like you just got to be there? What, like, which one would I want to be at? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I want to be there, but the one I'm most fascinated by is Altamont. <laughs> I mean, I mean that, and I write about that in the book about, you know, if like Woodstock is Star Wars, then like Altamont is the Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. And like, we all know the Empire Strikes Back is the better movie or the more interesting movie, you know? And I mean, the reason I wrote about those five shows is that I feel like the mythology of rock shows and like what people want from them and how we talk about them and like why they matter. And some, there's like some element of all one of those shows, like in, in all of that. And I think with Altamont, it stands as like the sort of ultimate signifier of danger. You know, like what rock shows are supposed to be like a place that you're not supposed to go, like where anything can happen, where it's exhilarating, but it's also kind of scary at the same time, you know, and that was a big thing for me before I ever saw a show. Like I was scared to go to shows because there was a danger to it. And I, Ultimate is sort of like the ultimate sort of like cautionary tale. Like this is like the worst thing that could ever happen. Of course, there's, there have been way worse tragedies. Yeah. Cincinnati comes to mind. Than, than Ultimate, right. wow. but, but it, it doesn't have the same, Oh, thing. Not, not in the mythology, no. Uh, it, it, it's mean, just like like Charles. You're Gibson. literally, as you say in the book, you're literally calling the devil, and he arrives. Right, exactly. And you got the Hell's Angels there. And you have like naked hippies on drugs, and you know, and you know, people getting punched out on stage, and it's just the it's a horrible, horrible thing. And yet again, it's like very seductive very darkly seductive in the same way that the rolling stones are very darkly seductive you know like you 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 were drawn into their story even though you may recognize like oh this shouldn't be glamorized you know there's a lot of things that here that shouldn't be glamorized that like are actually terrible that if you knew someone that was doing these things you would disown them but when the stones do it when keith richards does it it's like cool it's so cool (laughs) you know even though you know it's not like you can't intellectually defend it yeah. But there's and, something about it that's very attractive. And, and let's face it, um, you know, you you got to see the Stones. You, you you bring that up in the book. As far as playing live, especially in an arena, uh, I, I've seen them like you know a handful of times, and they're the only band that doesn't seem small in a football stadium. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I saw them, I I saw them on the Voodoo Lounge tour in 94 and that wasn't that was in a stadium that was like you know 50,000 people and i was literally in the last row like my back was to like the top of the stadium and um you know and i'd never really gone to like a rock show like that before and you know and i always joke about this but it's true like i thought i had to go see the stones because it was inconceivable to me that they would last any like past that tour like you know like mick jagger i think was 50 and it was like well there's never really been 50 year old rock stars that i know of you know he's gonna retire after this right and of course you know that's like 25 years ago now um but yeah i mean it's funny because like that show and like i remember the first time i saw the who it was like after johnny whistle had died and i was kind of cynical about it 
you know, because I thought, oh, it's only Daltrey and Townsend. It's not oh, really who. They brought in Pino Palladino to. Right. To and and uh, right. Zach Starkey was playing drums. And right. and they came out and played I Can't Explain, and it was like, I was off. Shit. Yeah. And same thing with the Stones. I think I was probably like a little bit cynical about it. And then they come out and they play Not Fade Away, and I was like, I'm, I'm gone. And um, there's something that just happened at that show where they became the stones of the seventies to me. Like, like, you know, I mean, I write about this in the book that like, you know, I think especially for people my age who never got to experience these bands at their peak firsthand, that there's a lot of imagination that goes on. There's a lot of projection that goes on because you, you see documentaries, you look at album covers and bands sort of exist in your imagination the way that they were then that isn't necessarily who they are now so like when you go see them live it can be sort of a weird thing because it's like oh shit like they're older you know like and you know that intellectually but still romantically you don't know that like in your in your romantic notions of of who they are but then they start playing and it, your imagination kind of takes over again and like it melds like with who they are and this kind of magical thing happens. Like when I saw Black Sabbath, you know, they were clearly older than they had, you know, were, and like Bill Ward wasn't even there. No. Um, but it was awesome. This is on the last tour on the, uh, the uh, this is the end tour. Yeah. And, but it was great. Yeah. It, 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 was, it was amazing to see them and they sounded awesome. And, um, well, you can see that you, you know. can see that in the uh, the local tribute band. Uh, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I've gone uh, or I've played on bills with uh, with them, and you know, uh, you know, for the first couple of songs, you're like, "Wow, look at them! They it's like it's a this show." And you know, after about three or four songs, you begin to kind of see the cracks. But most people in the audience don't. They they just are going with the fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, because and it's not even a tribute band. I mean, you know, people go see Fleetwood Mac and it's Mike Campbell's playing there now. And it's like not really, you know, it, 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 it's a weird, it's a different version of what they know. But it's like you go anyway because it's still better than nothing. You know, you're well, still experiencing this music that you love and like you're sharing it with a group of people. And that that ritual of loving this music i think that is what ultimately people pay so much money for it's you know, always you, gonna happen i you know i started yeah. seeing the dead in uh, in the the 80s and uh you know i i would you know meet these old geezers that were like oh man this is nothing you should have saw them in 1972 you know and right. then i'd meet even older geezers who would say nah, 72 nah the 1968 was like the year, you know, right. so, you know, to each their own. And at the end of the day, and I, I forget who said this, but it's like, whoever's having fun rules the night, you know? <laughs> and it's like, like, yeah, yeah like, and you go like dead and company or something. Yeah. You can make jokes about, Oh, it's John Mayer playing. Like he's not Jerry Garcia, but it's like, it's like 20,000 people having a great time and they're, and they're loving this music. Um, it's like, I think that they won that night. You know what I mean? It's like yep. the people in the audience, they won that night. Cause That's they're happy, right. you know, the experience, I mean, as long as like, 
John Mayer isn't coming out in a Jerry Garcia beard and people think that <laughs> he's Jerry Garcia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, as long as there's no like, you know, fraud going on, I don't I don't really see the problem with that. No. People know what they're getting and they yeah. they enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. And you know, and look it takes a little bit for the band to get together and uh, you know, after three tours now they they kinda have a, a band. It's it's not the Grateful Dead. It, they don't even call themselves the Grateful Dead, but it's uh, right. you know, it, it it's still taking this wonderful music and let's face it it all comes down to the song and these amazing songs that you know people still want to hear and and i think we both agree that people will want to hear for at least the foreseeable future yeah i think so i and because again you know it it really does transcend generations and there are people now who like you know again going back to dead and company um, they never got to saw, see Jerry Garcia. You know, Jerry Garcia has been gone now for like 23 years and, but they did see dead and company and that's where their experiences are going to be now. And they're going to romanticize that they're going to romanticize seeing dead and company in 2018. And they're going to say to kids in 2028, you should have seen dead and company in, 10, in 2018. Cause they were unbelievable. Oh, when, you know? Bob, when Bob Weir was still alive, my right. God. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And like, and that's part of the mythology too. You know, people create their own mythologies. It's not just the media that creates it. Um, so, you know, for yeah, a lot of people, to your point, there's, there's, it's not just the media. There is an organic um, connection that still exists about this. You know, again, to bring Joseph Campbell up, who, you know, was introduced to a Grateful Dead concert at uh, at one time uh, late in his career, and he walked away going, yeah, "Festival of Dionysus." Is exactly right. what the Greeks did. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Like. You know, rock and roll didn't invent this stuff. It was it's drawing from something that these stories Primal. are that, Primal. yeah, they're in the earth, you know, and that's why they, they matter to us. Um and there's a lot of value in that, you know? And I think again, you can you know, 'cause in, in my book I I, I I describe the book as an affectionate critique, you know, like where I have a lot of affection for this. I feel a lot of romantic, uh, I, I romanticize it, it to a degree, but I also can see it for what it is and I can critique it. Cause I think that's what you have to do, especially if you're going to write a book about something. But again, at the end of the day, like I, even if I can say like, well, this is, even if you want to say like, oh, this is phony, you know, this was something that was invented by corporations to sell records, and you're, you're a dope if you buy into this. Like on some level, I can recognize that, oh, yeah, the, this was good marketing maybe on some level. But something can be a marketing scheme and profound at the same time. You know, it's not an either-or proposition. Right. And where it comes from is if you invest your heart and soul in it and other people have done the same then it becomes profound. It becomes transcendent. No matter how it got started or where it came from or like what the motivations were, you know, when you have 50,000 people in a stadium singing along to something because it means something to them, it's profound. I don't care what, <laughs> whatever else you want to say about it, like, that is, that's fucking powerful and it cannot be denied. I mean, that is undeniable. So isn't a, a religion the next logical step? 
Should we just go open a strip mall space instead of Friday and Saturday nights that are all right for fighting? We change the hours to Sunday morning where we can take a stolen car, meet across the river in jungle land to celebrate the glory days of the promised land that was living on the edge of the world. Hey, man, it's already a religion for me, so I'm already there. Uh, but we don't need it. We don't need to centralize it. You know, we can now have our own ways of worship. But I, I'm definitely a, a true believer to the end. Stephen I'm going down with the ship. Stephen Hyden, high priest of classic rock. <laughs> it was a great pleasure talking with you today on Deep hey, and Rock. You do, too. You, too, man. I really appreciate it. Hey, thank you to Stephen for spending some time with us. That was really fun. Uh, Such a wide-ranging discussion. I could have spent uh, hours, uh, and I'm sure we will get together again here in the future. We enjoyed it, and we certainly hope you did, too. Uh, like I said at the top, this has been just about required reading for all of us here at the RNRA. We are on the same wavelength as Stephen when it comes to the state of rock and roll, how significant it was and still is to many of us, including you diggers, and that there is a positive future for rock and roll. It just isn't ever going to be what most of us lived through. Once again, we are proud to recommend Stephen Hyden's new book, Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock, from our friends at HarperCollins. Go get it and read it. I'm Christian Swain, and this has been Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of Rock and Roll Archaeology. Uh, send me a message sometime on Twitter. That's Swain underscore Christian. Okay, that's it. Oh, and uh, yeah. Even if we're all dead, keep up the rockin'. Diggers, Christian Swain here with a short pause for a great cause. 
We believe music education for young people is an investment in a better future for all of us. If you listen to our podcasts, chances are you agree. Little Kids Rock has transformed the lives of more than 650,000 public school students by bringing music education into their schools. Little Kids Rock trains teachers in underfunded schools to teach kids the music they love. From the Beatles to Bruno Mars, Led Zeppelin to Lady Gaga, Chuck Berry to Chance the Rapper. Little Kids Rock has become a national movement to restore, expand, and innovate music education in public schools across America. Visit littlekidsrock.org and learn more about how you can help put music where it belongs, in our schools. Thank you, and let's keep up the rockin' right into the next generation. Deeper Digs in Rocks. Produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 